BBC World Service. For the best of previews to the sporting weekend, listen to George Addo Jr. on The Locker Room on Joy 99.7 FM. Live on radio, live online, this is The Locker Room on Joy 99.7 FM with George Addo Jr. Boxing leads the way in the approaching sporting weekend. And all roads lead to Wembley for this WBC heavyweight championship fight. You get knocked out. The king is back. I'm sick and tired of testing Fury, man. He's such a fraud. Dylan White, you're not on my level. Let's have it! No one is hidden. You bring the pain, man. I dropped him multiple times. Untrue. Dylan White couldn't drop his Grammy. He just talks crap. I put it on you in a box and you yourself. Is there anyone else? One of the biggest fights in British boxing history. I survived so much things in life. Me and Dylan are going to put it on the line. One fight can change anything. You get knocked spark out. Everyone write me up. I just keep showing up. He's refusing to show up for today's Wembley press conference. I'll definitely win this stare down. Power! Number one, baby! You've gone silent. Where are you, brilliant? Dylan White and Tyson Fury go head-to-head for the WBC heavyweight title tomorrow. Fury is making his second defense of the title following his 11th round knockout of Deontay Wilder in October. We'll be in the United Kingdom for analysis. In football... Title races, top four battles, and relegation tassels resume in earnest across Europe. In England, these two are mindful of slipping at the stage with just a point separating them. The most important, like I always said, is to help the team to win. You know, like today, uh, we I scored the first goal. It was important for the team, and that's the most important. I scored 10, 20 goals or 30 goals. It's just to help the team, you know. Through the middle to Salah, little dink. The first one as well, I think Sadio for Mo, and then, um, if I'm right, and then Mo squares the ball, Luis in front of the goal, alone, great, and the second one was then Sadio for Mo, so um, a really, a really good game, and um, wonderful score, wonderful goals, and uh, so everybody is happy. Liverpool-Manchester City resumed the little war for English supremacy, with games against Everton and Watford. We'll also have our taps on the top four battle as Chelsea, Arsenal, Spurs and Manchester United look to gain grounds. We're in France, Germany, Italy and Spain to preview all match-ups. Also coming up... Charles Leclerc keeping up Ferrari's happy hunting ground in Australia. His three previous career wins have come from pole. Make that four career wins from pole position as Charles Leclerc takes the fastest lap of the race and wins. The Australian Grand Prix. Perez finishes on the podium, takes second place, and for his first podium of the season, George Russell comes home to finish in third, ahead of his teammate Lewis Hamilton in fourth. From the one heads to Italy this weekend, and the stakes couldn't be any higher. Charles Leclerc dominated the Australian Grand Prix last time out to stretch his lead in the Drivers' Championship over second place George Russell to 34 points. Defending champion Max Verstappen, meanwhile, We'll be hoping his Red Bull team can find a solution to the reliability issues that have seen him fail to finish two of the first three races. We have a preview. If you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to read them via social media accounts. Joy slash 997 on Facebook, 0551 111 on WhatsApp. Or you can tweet at us at Joy Sports GH. 
We'll be in the United States to preview the ongoing NBA playoffs and around the country to bring you updates ahead of the Ghana Premier League March Day 26. Time to talk about what the world is talking about in the world of sport. Hello from me, George Adi Jr. and welcome to The Locker Room. Live on radio, live online, this is The Locker Room with George Addo Jr. staying with us tonight and it's always a pleasure to have you remember you can send us your messages on our WhatsApp line 0551-111-997 and there's only one place to begin tonight then boxing yeah you get knocked out bitch. the king is back I'm sick and tired of testing for you man he's such a fraud Dylan White you're not on my level let's have it to survive so much things in life. Me and Dylan are gonna put it on the line. One fight can change anything. You get knocked spark out. Hello. No more talking. An all-British blockbuster heavyweight fight awaits us this weekend when Tyson Fury and Dylan White meet in the ring at Wembley Stadium. Now, the unbeaten Fury puts his WBC crown on the line, having destroyed Deontay Wilder in the trilogy bout in Las Vegas last October. Fury had eyed a unification showdown with the man who holds the other heavyweight belts, Alexander Uzik, but both White and Anthony Joshua rejected step-aside money. With Uzik and Joshua set to face off once again this summer, it left the WBC interim champion White with a chance to take on Fury and finally get his shot at a world title. White has not fought since his partner Alexander Povkin in their rematch last March. Now, the two bitter rivals meet again in London in an epic showdown tomorrow, and it's a good time to preview the bout. Joining me is Joy Sports Boxing Specialist Nathaniel Lato. Uh, thank you very much, Nat, for your time on the show, as always, and good to have you in the boxing corner. Tyson Fury's WBC heavyweight title is definitely on the line tomorrow. Countryman Dylan White will be looking to strip the Gypsy King off his belt. Both boxers are big characters, so what are the prospects on Saturday night? Well, the biggest prospects anybody could think about, especially considering that this is a high point in boxing. There's no doubt about the fact that uh, this is one that will get a lot of eyeballs around the world to look for a couple of reasons. The very obvious reasons that Tyson Fury over the last four to five years has given the world enough reason to turn a neck and take a look at him because of the kinds of performances that he has put up in the ring, where he has come from, the kind of, you know, um, recovery that he has staged from, you know, the issues of substance abuse and all of that that came, uh, the mental trauma that he went through and coming in to put up those brilliant performances against Deontay Wilder and defeating him to become the WBC heavyweight champion. 
is enough of a statement. Now you turn the tables and take a look at Dillian White, who obviously is at the biggest crossroad of his career. For me, one of the things that are clear about Dillian White is the fact that in as much as he comes in as maybe what the 28 to 1 underdog or whatever you could want to uh, describe it, he knows his worth. And because of it, he even wants a change of the kind of communication that is going around this bout. He's not coming in as just the other boxer. He's coming in as Dillian White, the Dillian White, who has been grown over the period, who has grown a certain level of pedigree as a contender. And he wants to be addressed as such, and he wants to be respected as such. And we'll have to give it to him. You know, in on big days such as these, the important thing, George, is that you need to know your worth. Let's quickly throw back to Tego versus Garcia. In the last week, Tego went into that fight. Even though everything was woven around Ryan Garcia, he knew his worth. He knew that in as much as he was going in the underdog, he knew that he was taking in something. And he gave proof to the whole world that, look, he wasn't going to be just one of those knockout casualties. He had challenges, but he was going to ride above them and put up a certain fight of a certain sort. And he made his statement. He's getting what he's looking for from that fight to a certain extent and there are positive takeouts from that fight so um what impresses me once again about dillian white is the fact that he's going into this bout knowing very well who he is and where he stands when it comes to the relevance uh, ladder of boxing and so that is what is going to make this fight exciting now you also look at the angle of you know, projections and predictions that have been made by the people who matter. I mean, you quickly take a look at former world champion David Hay, for instance. David Hay is very much respected for his exploits against, you know, Nikolai Valuev when he went in as the little David and went and defeated the Goliath in Nikolai Valuev. He says that uh, Dillian White is going to win this bout. Okay, he's going to knock, uh, you know, Tyson Fury out. You you look at the likes of um, Ricky Hatton, who are on the side of, of Tyson Fury. And then you look at one person who's fought both boxers. Okay, I'm talking about Derek Chisora, the Zimbabwean British, you know, contender who's, who's uh, seen what it means to fight both boxers. And... You know, Derek Chisora is is predicting a knockout win for Dillian White. Now, why why are these people doing all of this and saying all of this, George? It's very simple. It is because Dillian White has got the chin, he's got the heart, and he's got a very big and good punch. He's also got this very undefined, crafty left hook that gets his opponents on a good night so put all of these together and the you know the experienced names in boxing think that it could just be or these things could just be factors that could cause that upset that they are describing on the night that fury has stated outrightly that he'll be looking for a knockout on fight nights and of course with 22 knockouts in his career definitely Will White have to be wary? 
George, Dillian White will definitely have to be wary, especially when he goes in disregarding that reach, the same reach that Tyson Fury used against Deontay Wilder. Remember that Deontay Wilder has a big punch. Deontay Wilder has, you know, aggression. And on a good night, his aggression becomes effective aggression, which is a major scoring area for boxing. Now, Dillian White is a tough nut. And a lot is expected of him as a tough nut on the night. However, there is a very active, you know, punch output that always comes from the Gypsy King. And that is one thing that, you know, Dillian White needs to watch out for a great deal on the night because it could be the determining factor. Now, if Dillian White is able to establish his hook, his left hook, if he's able to establish his tough right, and he's able to close that gap, which always becomes a disadvantage for whoever is fighting the Gypsy King, then he could just be making some headway. Do remember that Tyson Fury has visited the canvas before. Even as much as he has not tasted defeat, he's visited the canvas before. He visited the canvas when he fought, uh, uh, you know, uh, Deontay Wilder. Therefore, it is possible there is um you know that likelihood of vulnerability on the jessica's side the only thing is that he would always come in with an attack oriented mind meaning that he wouldn't give the opponent too much room to breathe and too much room to think around going around you know his his craft so that is what will make this one a bit of a difficult one for you know for Dillian White and he sure has to watch out because you see once the Gypsy King is able to establish his jab on the face he keeps going through he keeps going through your guard and of course depending on how defensive you know um Dillian White is going to be on the night it could go or could not go in his favor in the sense that the Gypsy King would want to establish that jab like I said earlier on and will want to keep pushing and keep hitting the same spots to cause injury, to cause a confused opponent. And that will make him dominate the fight. And that's what every boxer is looking for. So, Nat, this is the point where you get to show us why you're a boxing specialist. Uh, exactly what are we to expect? What kind of result are we to expect in the ring tomorrow? Well, once again, another very difficult one to lean towards and another very difficult one to call. But once again, I'd reluctantly want to lean towards uh, uh, a hard-fought win for Tyson Fury. Um, you know, I, I, I've seen Tyson Fury's craft and I, I believe very much in what he can do on a big night such as this when you're you're having close to 95,000 fans in an iconic, you know, environment such as Wembley. You know, you can't get it wrong. You ask yourself that how many events around the world, you know, can attract such numbers on one night such as this. It is big. This cuts beyond boxing. It goes beyond sport. This is a global event. And... 
the stakes are very, very high. So for me, it is leaning reluctantly towards the Gypsy King to get yet another win and keep running as the WBC heavyweight champion. Thank you very much, Nathaniel Atto, our Joy Sports boxing specialist with analysis. Formula One next. And it's lights out and away we go. Decent start from Charles Leclerc. And he gets ahead then of Max Verstappen with Sergio Perez coming at his teammate. There's Lewis Hamilton and George Russell down the inside. Leclerc through from Verstappen. Here he is. Nice gap on the inside. Don't mind if I do. Charles Leclerc keeping up Ferrari's happy hunting ground in Australia. His three previous career wins have come from pole. Make that four career wins from pole position as Charles Leclerc takes the fastest lap of the race and wins the Australian Grand Prix. Perez finishes on the podium, takes second place and for his first podium of the season, George Russell comes home to finish in third ahead of his teammate Lewis Hamilton in fourth, fifth for Norris, sixth for Daniel Ricciardo. Charles Leclerc dominated the Australian Grand Prix last time out to stretch his lead in the Drivers' Championship over second place, George Russell to 34 points. Now, Britain's Russell finished third in Melbourne to maintain a promising start to the first season with Mercedes, despite his car struggling to match the pace of the Ferraris and the Red Bull. Defending champion Max Verstappen, meanwhile, will be hoping his Red Bull team can find a solution to the reliability issues that have seen him fail to finish two of the first three races. Uh, can Ferrari Charles Leclerc continue his fine form as Formula 1 makes its first visit to Europe this season for the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix uh, at Imola? Let's get a bit of analysis now. Raymond Yamada joins me for this. Thank you very much, Raymond, for your time on the show. Three races in and Lewis Hamilton is still without a win while also managing just a single podium finish and has only 28 points, 43 points off the top. Well, he's made his worst starts to a season and there are already claims of his championship dreams being over. Is this the reality or can the British racer salvage a season? Well, that's an interesting one. I think that for a driver like Lewis Hamilton, he has a lot of experience and this will not be the first time he's had very difficult starts to a season. If you take your mind back to 2008 when he won his first championship, it was quite a tough season and you look at the positions that he was chalking, he wasn't really you know, the standout performer in that season, there was Kimi Raikkonen, there was Felipe Massa, there was Robert Kubica, there was Fernando Alonso. These were drivers who were driving at the peak of their careers. And so it was quite it was quite a difficult season for Luis Hamilton. And if you look at the positions that he was able to pick up in the run-up to winning that championship by just a point, you know, he was fit at times, he was 13, he was 10, there were times he retired, especially in Canada. You know, he was 10th in France, he was 5th in USA. And, you know, it kept going on and on. In Japan, he was 12. In Italy, he was 7th. And so, it was one of those seasons for him, but he was still able to hold on to a win in the, in the course of that season. And then in 2009, you know, at the time, he was driving for McLaren Mercedes, and he had very tough competition from Jensen Barton uh, of Braun Mercedes. And all that time, you could always tell that Lewis Hamilton had something in him. You look at that 2009 season, where until the 10th race of the season, Lewis Hamilton was finishing 7th, 6th, 4th, 9th, 12th, 15th. He never finished on the podium. And so... There's one driver who's been there, has experienced it before. And you also look at those seasons where, you know, drivers like Sebastian Vettel would chalk off 31 points deficit to be able to win the season. And you also talk about seasons where the same Vettel was able to 
um, overcome a 39 point deficit to win the season. It means that, you know, drivers have it in them to always be able to come back from poor starts to the season. And so I think that you won't put it past Lewis Hamilton. I don't think that it's a bad season for him. There's always a saying that, you know, once your car uh, is not looking good, it's very difficult to actually get it to function as you would want it to before the end of the season or possibly win a championship with it. That's one of the saying that uh, the engineers normally come up with. But I think that Lewis Hamilton is a formidable driver. He understands the system very well. Mercedes themselves have admitted that um, a few updates, a few upgrades would come up. Uh, they are still trying to investigate the real cause of the non-performance of the engine and so uh, with time i'm sure uh, we're having a 22 race season uh, 19 to go i think that lewis hamilton and mercedes would come back nobody saw um, max verstappen not finishing the race last weekend and a couple of those would happen uh, for most of the drivers on the circuit they're going to have challenges they're going to face you know times where they would have a bad patch on the circuit and so for me I think that once Mercedes are able to sort themselves out, we'll see the best of Lewis Hamilton. He has a lot of experience. He's the most experienced driver on the circuit, I must say. And uh, being there and experiencing it and being able to overcome, I still think that he should be able to do it. In 2009, uh, driving that MP424 for McLaren, despite the fact that he didn't have a good start to the season, he managed to finish fifth. And even at the time that he managed his first podium finish, Mercedes has just 13 points. And so I think that um, he should be able to come good in the course of the season. I don't think that it's, it's, it's done for Lewis. Hamilton. I think he'll come back stronger in the course of the season when Mercedes sort themselves out. Albeit 34 points behind Charles Leclerc, George Russell has been the Spaniards' closest competition to the Ferrari driver who's enjoying an imperial season so far. Leading the races, leaderboard with 72 points. Remember, Russell is in his debut season with Mercedes. What have you made of him so far? Well, for most part, um, George Russell was a decent driver at Williams. And any time he actually drove for Mercedes, sitting in for any driver, he also showed a good account of himself. George Russell is a cool head. Uh, he does understand the stuff. I think that he made this intention quite clear when he was joining the team that he wasn't going to be a wingman to Lewis Hamilton. Again, the young man said he wasn't going to be a deputy to Lewis Hamilton. And so he's actually coming to a team, um, stepping into the big shoes of Valtteri Bottas and trying to do what he can do best. I think that his inexperience, uh, well, I would say his extremely inexperienced but his inexperience at this level has paid off a bit because he won't take too many risks on the circuit he will listen to team orders he'll take orders that he has to take and do exactly what he has to do on the circuit that has worked for him and if you look at how he's been driving you can actually tell that he gives a lot of respect to Lewis Hamilton on the circuit. Same way Lewis Hamilton also gives him a lot of respect. And so you see that team working together to make sure their two drivers are up there. And I think that George Russell has picked them more. Um, he is not taking too many risks like the experience Lewis Hamilton would. But I think that he's getting there. He'll become a better driver. And once he, get, he becomes a better driver, we'll see the best of him. But so far, he's been decent. So far, he's been perfect. And I think that um, the young man would grow in strength. And I think that would we'll, we'll get the best of him once Mercedes are able to sort out their speed issues once they're able to sort out that power unit and once they're able to sort out their poor pushing issues. I think that we should see much, much better performance from George Russell. But for me, uh, if it's ahead of Lewis Hamilton, I think that Lewis Hamilton has also had a role to play. And in Jeddah, I think that for most part of that race, uh, we saw Lewis Hamilton um, try a strategy that never really worked because at the time he wanted to pit, there was a virtual car on the circuit, the pit lane was closed and so that also affected him in a way uh, we saw him in Australia where he was dead you know, from the start of the race, uh, but he, he lost it a bit, I think that Lewis Hamilton is not finished and you look at how that race ended 
He was driving behind George Russell for most part. And if Lewis Hamilton had been driving behind any other driver and not George Russell, he would have tried to overtake him. But at least he wanted the young man to get a feel of the podium. And the young man did get a feel of the podium. And that should also, you know, galvanize the young man as he tries to move on in future in the Formula 1 season. I think that was a good podium finish for George Russell. And it was good that Lewis Hamilton did not try to chase him down to occupy that third spot. And I think that uh, George Russell really... It's one for the future, without doubt. I think that he's, he's a good signing for Mercedes and he'll go all the way uh, driving for Team Mercedes. Ferrari is currently miles ahead on the Constructors' leaderboard with 104 points and 90 points ahead of their closest competitors already. Ray, uh, two seasons ago, they endured the worst ever campaign, picking up only 131 points in the entire season and swore to get back to their best. They seem to be on course, so... What is working out for the Italian constructors this time around? Well, for Ferrari, it's a homecoming for them. They go back home uh, in front of their Tifosis. Definitely don't want to make a huge statement. They've been dominant this season. And the last time we saw a driver dominate first four races was Nico Rosberg um, in 2016 for Mercedes. And so Ferrari would want to do the same. They would want to replicate the same. So far, they've been excellent. And for Ferrari, one has worked for them this season. And they've had more downforce. They've had more traction. They've been doing better on the medium, slow speed corners. And they are able to get on par quickly to exit the corners, you know, with a lot of pace. And so they've been excellent. I think that you won't take anything away from them. For Red Bull, who are definitely going to be their main challenges in this weekend's race, reliability issues have been their problem. I think that two times we've seen that happen. And poor reliability has been their downfall this season. That said, I still think that they've been able to give Ferrari a push. They've been able to be on the neck of Ferrari as far as the season is concerned. Their straight line speed has been absolutely great. And so I think that a lot is at stake this weekend. This weekend, uh, because of the narrow nature of the circuit where we may not have a lot of overtaking, uh, a lot of time management is expected. And again, uh, we are expecting the teams to, you know, come out all guns blazing this weekend. We are going to have the F1 sprint return this weekend. And this time around, there's going to be a reward for the top eight teams instead of the top three points will be awarded to the first eight teams in the uh, F1 sprint. So the winner of the third practice session which will be the um, f1 sprints will definitely start from pole position and that's how we're going to settle the qualifiers this weekend and so it's going to be interesting the race itself is going to start right from that f1 speed into the mid race and so whatever happens in the f1 um sprints should give us you know a precursor to what we should expect on the race day itself but imola without doubt would serve us drama would serve us some excitement but looking at the pace of ferrari looking at you know the downfalls of Ferrari, looking at the traction, looking at how almost everything that has to go right for Ferrari is going right and driving in front of their home fans. I think that uh, we can't expect anything other than a Ferrari win this weekend. I think that Ferrari would win. I think that um, if Red Bull are able to solve their reliability issues and um, we see Max Verstappen in there, he would give them a round up for their money and he should be able to finish second. I think that um, Carlos Sainz or Sergio Perez should be battling it out for that third spot. For Mercedes, I think that they still need a few more weeks to be able to sort out their issues. And so Mercedes would finish with points, but I don't see them going into this race as favourites to win it. I think that the clear favourite would be Ferrari and Red Bull possibly trying to make sure that advantage doesn't go their way. Formula 1 versus Ebola after the circuit's return last year. It was characterized by the heightened chaos and high-speed crash. If you can remember, naturally, Ebola proves to be a chaotic race. The location for the demise of Aiton Senna and Roland Ratzenberger in 1994. Are we down for another haywire 57 laps this weekend? 
Imola is always a very difficult place to go, very difficult circuit, and it's very narrow. It makes it very difficult to overtake, and the cabs are always headed for any driver on that circuit. And in this era of ground effect, where um, the cars have to be so close to the ground for that ground effect and the airflow system to get the car to have a lot more downforce. It's always difficult because you expect the drivers to approach the cabs with caution and still try to make up, you know, by trying to deliver fastest possible lap times. And it's always going to be very difficult on a circuit like Imola. And I think that it's, it's, it's one of those circuits that... You never know what might just happen. And we've gone past the tragic events of 1994. We've gone past, you know, how dangerous that circuit was. It's been totally laid out, new layout. And I think that it's still not left us without talking points. It's, it's, it's given us talking points almost every season. And I think that it boils down to the brilliance of the drivers. It boils down to the mentality of the drivers. It boils down to how well they manage their cars on the circuit. It's, it's always... Uh, it's, it's, it's always a difficult place, you know, it's a twisty circuit, it has, it's, it's bumpy at a point, and it's, 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 just, it's just a driver's nightmare when you go to Imola, but that, that, that said, that 63 lap circuit is very good, it's, it's, it's an exciting race to watch, the Tifosi is always making sure they are supporting their own, and I think that we may, we, may, we may see a lot of drama this season, I don't think it's going to be chaotic, because with a new ground effect coming into force, we're expecting a lot more downforce, a lot more traction on the circuit, I think that drivers definitely would be cautious and you know you don't you don't go to Imola not paying respect to the kids. You don't go to Imola, you know, not paying attention to your traction. You don't go to Imola not paying attention to your downfalls. And so um, there's a lot at stake in this weekend's race. Uh, we'll see how things pan out. But for Imola, always an interesting place to race. And I think that we are going to see another fine race um, with the Tifosis this weekend. Thank you very much, Ray, for your time on the show. Live on radio, live online, this is The Locker Room with George Addo Jr. Football to come shortly, but let's talk uh, the NBA now because the playoffs are very, very much on. For a tie, cool, this could give him the lead, Wiggins free, good! Curry, no, Jeff Lanip is out there, great offensive hustle and rebound, Wiggins. Here comes Curry, drives, contorts, floats, and got the ball in! Curry, with 24, now 26, as he zooms to the rack! Run! Denver has not scored in the last five possessions. Jokic with 37 into Green. Green stole the ball! Green stole the ball! And Golden State the other way and a foul called. And it goes on Morris as Poole was adjusting. Morris picks up his first. What a defensive play by Tremont Green. Thompson will run it out. The Golden State Warriors are going to go up three games to none. No team has ever come back from that kind of deficit in a series in the playoffs in the NBA. 9-2 Golden State Rock. Now the NBA playoffs are fully underway. This will be the second weekend of the postseason. So far, it's been nothing short of intriguing. Major upsets, great performances from stars, and a couple of epic games have the first round underway with a big bang. This weekend, there's a full slate and variety of talking points. Let's get some perspective ahead of the weekend then. And joining me is my colleague, Joel Botte for uh, this. Thank you very much, Joel, for your time. Look, critical game three between the Brooklyn Nets and Kevin Durant and the Boston Celtics. Now, the Celtics have already won two games. That's the first team to win four games, you know, qualifies for the next round, if you know, of course. So it's a must win then for the Brooklyn Nets. 
if they will have any chance to qualify what should we expect here game three very pivotal and very critical george should boston take a 3-0 lead in this series it will be almost impossible for the brooklyn nets to come back and that is because no team has been able to come back from a 3-0 deficit in the nba playoffs judging from how the brooklyn nets played in games one and games two you could clearly tell that the home crowd did play a role in boston's wins and i'm expecting something similar to happen in brooklyn where the home crowd also becomes hostile to the boston celtics kevin durant and Kyrie irving played poorly in the first two games but looking at where the series has reached it's at a very critical point where should brooklyn get the win the series could really turn and it could be 2-2 in a matter of two games at their home so Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant really need to step up with especially with the fact that Ben Simmons is out for this third game and would come back for the fourth game if he does come back many question whether he'll be able to perform with high intensity and also give them the efficiency and the points that they're looking for but focusing on game three I believe that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving really need to step up their game and need to change the series for Brooklyn. Joe, both of last year's finalists, the Bucks and the Suns, are tied in their respective series, or respective series one game apiece. Both teams are heavy favourites to make it out of the first round, so uh, we'll be under pressure to get a win in the game three. Major note is Devin Booker for the Suns and Chris Middleton for the Bucks are out with injuries. And that should be a major blow. How are you expecting the injuries then to change anything, if any, at all? Injuries have been a big problem this season, George. But focusing more on the playoffs, it's more problematic for teams when stars go down. Chris Middleton has been huge for the Milwaukee Bucks, especially in clutch moments. And so for such a player to go down in the series being tied one all, it, it almost gives you that feel that the Bulls have an opportunity to actually take a lead in this series. And so this is how serious it is when it comes to players going down in, injured. There are numerous examples I can give with in the past. NBA Finals, Toronto Raptors, where they won their first championship. Kevin Durant went down and it almost felt like it was the end for them. It, 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 it was the end for, for the Golden State Warriors. They lost that series and lost the championship to the Toronto Raptors. There are many examples in the past where one big player goes down and, and it completely changes everything for the team. And so for such a series and for such games that are in first rounds, going into second rounds, you can't even tell what happens. If you're going to face a much tougher opposition, you don't know what could happen. You need such big players and such key players to guide you through each and every game and each and every round in the competition. So I believe these injuries change so much for both the Phoenix Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks. The Golden State Warriors led by Steph Curry are two games up on the Denver Nuggets looking to get back to the, I mean, looking to get back to dominate their ways. They have been riddled with uh, injuries the last two seasons. Before that, the Golden State Warriors were perennial title contenders and this season looks like they are launching an all-out assault to regain the lost glory. Will there be any joy for them? 
This season, the Golden State Warriors have been phenomenal. But I believe the joy does not come from how they've performed in the regular season. I believe it's due to the fact that they've had most of their big players return from injuries. Clay Thompson has been out for almost two seasons. Draymond Green had an injury midway through the season. And Steph Curry also developed an injury at the latter part of the season. And so having these players for their postseason series and postseason games is really huge for them. It's quite unfortunate for the reigning MVP Nikola Jokic and the Denver Nuggets that they come up against a really difficult team in Golden State because just watching how they've played in the two games so far, they've almost been flawless. Everything has just been going their way in terms of shots, defense. It's been perfect so far. And so that's where the joy comes in for them. Having a complete team from starters to bench to reserves it just makes things easy for them as they progress through the competition. Hopefully, they are able to get to the NBA Finals and also win another title this season. So we look forward to all the NBA playoffs to come. Great games. We're looking forward to them. Thank you very much, Joe, for your time on the show, as always. Football next, and time to get into the huge stories that made headlines this week. Of course, the new Manchester United boss, Eric Ten Hag, is top of the agenda. Here's the BBC Joy Sports two-way series. And as always, I had a great chat with the BBC's Mas Faruqi. Thank you very much, Mas, for your time on the show. Great to have you on the locker room back on again. And we can begin with Chelsea because the Blues have come to a 4-2 defeat on Wednesday evening. A very disappointing result, spearheaded by rookie mistakes in defence. It was a very much new-look defence by Christensen and Malangsa stepping in for Thiago Silva and Rudiger. Does the performance of the two replacements raise problems of squad death, quality in the squad itself, especially in defence for Thomas Tuchel? It was a surprise defeat, wasn't it, George? Especially given the way that Arsenal had been playing coming up to this match against Chelsea in midweek. They'd lost three on the bounce in the Premier League. So I don't think any of us really saw it coming. And that will be, I think, a real source of frustration for Thomas Tuchel. You mentioned uh, the new-look defence with Christensen and Saar at the back. Thiago Silva, obviously, is getting a bit older now and potentially can't, you know, deal with every second and every minute of the intensity of the Premier League. Rudiger as well is an interesting one because we expect him perhaps to move on in the European summer if he can't sort out a new contract at Stamford Bridge. So it does show that there are perhaps a couple of issues uh, in Chelsea's squad, which previously at times this season, particularly beginning of the season, looks so, so strong. I think, though, that fact that they're just so inconsistent at the moment for Thomas Tuchel will be will be the real issue. You look back at the, the big, big win over Southampton. Before that, there was that loss to, to Brentford. This loss to Arsenal as well. It's one thing or the other from Chelsea at the moment, and I think that's what's going to be really frustrating for Thomas Tuchel. Well, Mars, talk to me about Lukaku. I know Thomas Tuchel has spoken about Chelsea not going to give up on the Belgian, but honestly, is there a future for him at the bridge? Yeah, this is such an interesting one, isn't it? When Lukaku first rejoined 
Chelsea, he just hit the ground running so well, didn't he? You couldn't see him going a game, a, a, a few minutes really in a game without scoring. He just seemed to be playing so, so well, but he just hasn't come back at that level since he picked up that injury. And I think you're absolutely right. I think um, Chelsea and, and Tuchel have found a way to play without him and, and they're going with that Kai Havertz option. And they do look a lot better and they do look more likely to score with that option without playing Lukaku. I know that he has tried to play a little bit again uh, against Arsenal and, and, and did come off. Chelsea look a lot better with Havertz going forward and Timo Werner as well, a word on him. He's had a big, big part to play as well, hasn't he? And in, in creating and, and, and having a part to play in those goals for them this season. The result was a big one then for Mikel Arteta and Arsenal who have our dreams of Champions League football. With six games to go and tied on points at the moment with Spurs, can you see Arsenal return to a league competition? And is there any possibility of Chelsea being drawn into the top four race at all? I think Chelsea will be fine. Don't worry, George. I think Chelsea will be fine and finish third and therefore make sure of, of their spot in the European Champions League next season. I think that fourth spot in the Premier League, that fourth spot uh, behind Chelsea, behind Liverpool, Manchester City, whichever way the top two in the Premier League finishes this season, I think it will come down to one of those two London sides, either Arsenal or Tottenham. Tottenham obviously there at the moment have a much better goal difference than Arsenal, but you just don't know, do you, what kind of boost mentally that win over Chelsea might give Arsenal as we head now into, into these final games of the season, this final run-in that you mentioned. And the big, big factor as well is the North London derby that both sides have got to play each other next month on May the 12th. And that match looks bigger and bigger every single time you look at it, doesn't it? Mars Everton secured the big results themselves with a last-minute equaliser from Richarlison. Probably the toughest will feel they deserved more in the game. They dominated. They are currently five points above the relegation zone. And Lampard, before the Everton game, hinted... Everton's defence will prove crucial to their survival hopes. With a run of upcoming games versus Liverpool, Chelsea, Crystal Palace and Arsenal, what are the survival chances of Frank Lampard's Everton? Yeah, I was actually at this game uh, at Goodison Park on Wednesday night, George, and uh, I lost my voice almost really when that was Charleston goal went in the equaliser in the 93rd minute it was such a scrappy goal but you could see from the Everton fans around me how much it meant because I knew how important it was to make sure they avoided defeat to Leicester and it is a, a big big factor for them as well because they're heading now into this really tricky match against Liverpool on Sunday the Merseyside derby we know that uh, Merseyside derbies always tend to be uh, sometimes unpredictable but not really in the last few years and Liverpool playing so so well at the moment that you can't see anything than a Liverpool win uh, for them from that game I just think that yes that Everton defence is going to be really really important for them and it needs to be a lot better than it was for long periods in that match against Leicester in midweek. They need more of the performances that we saw in the win over Manchester United. That's the kind of work rate that Frank Lampard is going to want from his players. Well, at this point, it's definitely bye-bye from the Premier League to Norwich City and Watford. I'm right on this, Mas. I think it probably is, George. I think when you look as well at... at the table and uh, the fact that they have played more games as well than teams uh, just above them that plays against them time is, is definitely running out you look they've played 32 games Norwich 32 games Watford uh, Everton crucially just above that bottom three that we've just been talking about have, have played a game less than all three sides below them when you when you take into account Burnley as well Watford though seven points behind Everton Norwich um, 
eight points behind Everton. You just think now that it, it's too little, too late, and I cannot see anything than both of those sides getting relegated, unfortunately, for them at the end of the season. Manchester United announced the appointment of Ajax coach Eric Ten Hag as the next manager. The Dutchman will take over at the end of the season on a three-year deal. What can you tell us about him? And could he be the man to get United back to winning ways? Well, a lot of our listeners will know, obviously, um, Ten Hag from that incredible run that Ajax made to the European Champions League semi-finals back in 2019, almost making the final as well, but just losing out uh, to Tottenham in their semi-final. And they went past Real Madrid, they went past Juventus on the way to that run to the last four in Europe as well. So I think they won a lot of fans over with the kind of football that they played and the young players as well that, that they develop at Ajax. And that's the kind of um, uh, philosophy, if you like, that I think has been lost Manchester United in the last couple of years certainly if you speak to United fans they point back to to that's what they used to do they used to develop their own talent and, and play that kind of football and that's been lost a little bit over the last few years so I think that that's what they are hoping Ten Hag will, will bring with him when he comes across to Old Trafford in the European summer speaking to fans um, on Thursday when the news was announced you could sense that they were really excited they are really really pleased with this appointment and they think Ten Hag really could be the man to turn things around for them but there's so much for him to do they are going to need to be patient you know you've got big players in the summer who are out of contract big players who aren't necessarily gelling in the dressing room uh, big issues with some players form uh, Harry Maguire has been talked very openly about in the last few months Jadon Sancho obviously joined for such a big fee uh, at the beginning of the season really hasn't clicked and um, it's just not really the kind of football that the fans really want them to be playing so there's plenty for him to do and the fans are really going to have to be patient because it could take some time Arsenal, Manchester United, then tomorrow, early kickoff on the Emirates Mars. Definitely more sorrow for the Red Devils, or are they going to find some respite here? Interesting, this match, isn't it? I certainly think this is one of the, the biggest games of the weekend. Matches between these two sides always are. And it's so interesting now to know how this one might go. Coming off the back, as we say that, big, big result for Arsenal on Wednesday against Chelsea. That terrible result for Manchester United against Liverpool on Tuesday when they were humbled and, and Ralph Ranić, their interim boss, was so scathing in his assessment of, of their performance after that match. Manchester United definitely had a low ebb. Arsenal full of confidence after their midweek performance, but you just don't know with matches between these two. Historically, down the years through the Premier League, these have been matches that have been very bad-tempered, very physical, and you wonder if Manchester United can bring some of that edge to their game on Saturday, whether that could make the difference. On paper, I think Arsenal uh, are, are favoured, probably, because of the kind of football that they've played in the last couple of days. But Manchester United, you wouldn't put it past them at all to, to just mentally get over the line and, and maybe not win nicely, win ugly, but three points is three points, isn't it? Thank you very much, Mas Faruqi, for your time on the show. And that was Mas Faruqi uh, with me on the Joy Sports BBC two-way series. It's now time to check out the other games to look forward to. I'll tell you a bit about what's coming up in the English Premier League. But let's talk about uh, the games across Europe. And we start with Germany's De Classica. It's Bayern Munich up against Borussia Dortmund. And that's a big one. You want to pay attention to an Italy AC Milan are up against Lazio. Bologna play against Internazionale. And these are the short two games to go to there in Italy and France. Paris Saint-Germain up against Rem. It's an important game as the Parisians can wrap up the title. In England, Chelsea face West Ham uh, right back at their troubled home grounds. 
considered 11 goals on the Stamford Bridge and three games. Not too good. Look, there's Manchester United up against Arsenal. There's Brentford up against Spurs. It's one of the key battles to follow. So let's stick with the subject of Ten Hag, of course, taking charge of Manchester United at the end of the season. And, well, the BBC's Sonny Ravajala had an important discussion there with Van der Haar, who is current assistant coach of Ten Hag at Ajax, but of course worked with him earlier at FC Utrecht. His first question to him was, what kind of person is Ten Hag? Um, he's direct and things only happen the way he wants to and that and that's that's typical Eric and at the beginning from every club I think he has his issues with players or maybe with the board or whatever but it's, it's his way to work and and to be honest you know the way he works uh, brings him a lot of success. Uh, yeah you mentioned success there he's done really well I mean what what do you think makes him so special as a coach? Because if the press talk uh, bad about him he doesn't care. If the board uh, says you have to play with another player, you have to play another system, he says, no, it's my system, I'm going to do it this way. And, you know, he practices for a long time. So the, our practice at the beginning was like two hours every session. We had two sessions uh, a day, at least two hours each. And then he got a meetings uh, talking about the system we want to play. His meetings were at the beginning were like, like 45 minutes. And the same happened at Ajax Amsterdam. You know, uh, players, they were a little bit like, okay, uh, is this the way it's going to work? Look at the success he has right now except uh, last uh, Sunday. And there's so much to, to read into managers, isn't there? You know, we can see them in public. Uh, you'll, you know, there's stuff that goes on in the dressing room, on the touchline. You've been with him in all those scenarios. What, what's he like on the touchline? Is, is he one who's going to be shouting at the players and will he be throwing teacups in the dressing room? No, not at all. Um, if Eric has an issue with a player, then it's about his, uh, his, his, his football things, not about his personal life. Uh, Eric will talk till till the till the player drops on the ground and he says, "Okay, coach, you're right." So Eric will always talk with players, ne- never never get a fight with players. To, and and the other thing is, uh, I work with with Rangnick as well in Germany. So that's uh, so I, I had both uh, managers, uh, Rangnick and Eric Tenach. Eric is more like a professor on the field, and uh, Rangnick is more the professor outside of the field. And he, he's one of the the first laptop coaches they call it in Germany. Like Nagelsmann is right now at uh, Bayern Munich. But paint us a picture of the structure that the club that he the, the clubs he's run. You know, how, how does it work for him? Who is he working with, and you know, how much is he in control of everything that's going on, and how much will he will he delegate to others? Eric is involved with everything. If there is a new building, if, if they're going to uh, build a new building, then he's involved with the doors, with the, with the glasses, everything. Uh, so he wants to know everything what's going to happen at the club. And for for that time at Utrecht, you know, Utrecht is not that big club in Ireland, but at Ajax, Ajax is, of course, uh, I think it's, let's say, number 10 of, 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 of Europe, of best clubs. So he has a lot of work to do. So he works like literally like 80, 90, maybe 100 hours a week. And it's all about football, football, football. And to get players better, to get the, the, the system better, to get the club better. And that's Eric. If we had a win, let's say against Ajax, we, we won with FC Utrecht. Eric is talking about the next game. He's not celebrating, he's talking about the next game on maybe on Wednesday or maybe the, the week after. Those Manchester United players they've got at the moment are underperforming to say the least. I mean, if, if you're a United player and you're heading to the training pitch and you, you're ready for your first training session, what, what are you going to expect from Eric Ten Hag? Oh, he, he always starts with a, with a, with a meeting. It could be, could be 10 minutes, could be 45 minutes, could be with videos, everything. And then you have a session for like two hours to work on the system, to work to, to make every player better. He's going to talk a lot with the, with, the, with the star names, of course. He's going to talk a lot with every player. 
and he's trying to convince them, you know, to to uh, to work on the on the on the fitness on on every every detail of, of football. And I think it work, work with stars, you know, uh, with like like Ronaldo, you know, he, he would probably say maybe you get the second session off or maybe you got a. Alternative uh, session. Uh, and Ralph Ranyick talks about uh, Liverpool being six years ahead of United in their 4 0 defeat at 